mass shootings, gun violence, children dying. Demands for gun control dominate headlines amidst the horrors of these tragedies. Charged with raw emotions, social movements find the opportunity to merge with policy initiatives to intensify battle cries for sweeping reforms and constitutional change. Yet when attempting to solve the gun violence issue, much like with abortion, rarely are the underlying causes for these visceral horrors addressed. If only assault weapons were confiscated and banned. If only the Second Amendment were discarded. These are only some of the ill-forged solutions which permeate the conversation, leading many to believe it is a one-solution issue. But there's far more to the problem than meets the eye. Here to help us understand the depths of the issue is Leah Sargent. Welcome, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here. So gun control, this is a very, very divisive topic, even among you know the most reasonable people. And I, I wanted to talk to you today because a few years ago, you're a statistician, uh, as well as a writer, and you actually sat down and analyzed the data surrounding tens of thousands of lives that are lost to gun violence annually. So while we see mass shootings, especially school shootings, those dominate the headlines, but they're really, you discovered they're a very small percentage of the gun deaths in America, and they're also the hardest to prevent. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. So if you look at who dies, you know, at the barrel of a gun in America, the majority of those deaths are suicides. So when we're thinking about how to keep people safe from gun violence, and we start by talking about mass shooting, we're missing the vast majority of victims. Now, obviously, it's scarier to think about an outside threat coming for you than the threat you pose to yourself. But even if we look at gun homicides, mass shootings are only about 1% of all gun homicides. They're just hmm. particularly terrorizing ones. So they dominate our attention reasonably so. But right. if we want to save lives, we want to focus on the lives that we have the most potential to save. And a lot of gun deaths are more tractable than mass shootings are to prevent. Okay. So uh, you, in your Edify video, unpack some of the specifics of those statistics. And listeners, there'll be a link in the show notes below to Leah's Edify video, which I would highly recommend that you watch. Um, you know, I... I think, I mean, at least for me as a mom, and I know you're a mom as well, when you, you you see a school shooting, and especially, you know, ones like Uvalde, when there's small children involved, um, I, I think it just goes to the heart of any parent, but particularly moms. But there doesn't seem to be, from the research you've done, really any way we can anticipate and and stop those kind of mass shootings. That's the most terrifying thing to me about it. It's awful. It's, you know, it's galvanizing. It's it's horrific but it's also something that's kind of like a lightning strike. You know, we can kind of predict and anticipate they'll keep happening, which is the sickening part, but we're very bad at anticipating where or who, and that limits how much we can do to prevent them. So, you know, when I think about you know, what little kids go through of just doing shooter drills or anything, it's not something I want my kids to do because I think the risk to them is so small and the chance of frightening kids is so high. It's one of those things where the the risk outweighs the benefit. Um, right. I think actually the thing we do that could do the most to stop school shootings in particular is being really careful how we cover them. You know, these are copycat crimes. These are things where someone who's very disturbed for reasons that have nothing to do in many cases with the school they target looks for a way to express their internal distress and disturbance and picks a cultural script we've handed them with the way we cover these shootings. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's a very interesting point because, you know, the day uh, before the Uvalde shooting, I, I live in Chicago and we have lots of 
difficulty with this particular area of crime. There was a mass shooting at a McDonald's, um, 200 feet from Holy Name Cathedral. Nine people were shot, two died. Uh, that was the day before Uvalde. It didn't, it was a blip. Um, mm. If it was covered at all, I think in the media, it was, uh, you know, it was all gang related. And I think that's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think the way in which these are covered, part of it's the subject of the homicide, right? It, it, an innocent child being killed is going to elicit more s- uh, sympathy, I think, than a gang member. Um, but it's these mass shootings that just suck the oxygen out of the room in any conversation about gun control. So when this happens, these kind of tragedies happen, what is the best way without sounding like you're cold hearted, you know, to say to friends and family, you know, I mean, you don't want to start with, well, statistically speaking, uh, this is actually, you know, only 1% of all shootings. Do you have a, a way that you've developed to talk to friends and family about this in a, in a rational way that helps them to understand it? So to be honest, I would almost never start that conversation right after a tragedy when it's still fresh, because I think that is the moment where everyone kind of to jump in with their agenda or their idea. But it's a really hard moment to talk about what are we going to do. I want to take time to pray for the victims, pray for the family of the shooter, and kind of start that conversation in a calmer time and say, you know, it's a tragedy that people die this way. What do we? What can we do that can prevent this? And right. you know. I really try and bracket off what are the limited things we can do to mitigate the risk of mass shootings from where do we have real power to save lives that we're neglecting because we're focusing Mm -hmm. on where we're least powerful. Now, the one thing that I think has been a positive change when it comes to mass shootings and school shootings is there's been a real shift by journalists, which I admire, of trying not to use the shooter's name repeatedly not doing breathless profiles of the shooter. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a. I think that's an excellent media policy. And that really, if you think about this as a campaign of terror rather than of simple murder, don't give the terrorist what they're after, which is attention. You know, if we keep telling mm-hmm. people, if you shoot up a school, you know, every one of your political hangups will get coverage for weeks. We're telling people what the reward is. Right, right. Well, you know, you you mentioned prayer. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, you know, these are largely Catholic listeners and we're people of faith and people of prayer. And it is our natural response um, as Catholics and uh, people of faith to pray for everyone involved. But if you even say that, like praying for all involved or, you know, thoughts and prayers, if you're of the more agnostic bent, um, you're set upon almost, mm-hmm. um, as if, you know, this is not enough and, you know, we need to quote unquote do something. And then that seems to lead to knee jerk legislation or other laws, you know, they, there's the old saying in the law, right? Hard cases make bad law. Mm-hmm. So you see some bad law being, uh, recommended um, or put forward and using really imprecise language. Can you speak a little bit to that? You talk about it briefly in your Edify video, but about the uh, difference in magazines and what an assault weapon really is. Yeah, this is something that was surprising to me. I think I think everyone on the team that was doing the research found something that was surprising. And the assault weapons ban, I think, surprised a lot of folks because I'm not a gun owner. I've never fired a gun. I don't have a lot of fluency with guns. So when I hear people talk about assault weapons ban, I think of that as a really well-defined category. Like surely gun owners go and ask for an assault weapon and then get something everyone recognizes as an assault weapon. But as a matter of law, an assault weapon is a particular kind of semi-automatic that essentially has too many accessories attached to it at the point of sale. So you know, okay. if you think of a naked AR-15 that's not an assault weapon. An uh, right. AR-15 that has a suppressor and like an extended stock 
and like a bayonet, which is not really as relevant, but counts as one of the accessories. You know, if you put enough things on it at the point of sale, then it's an assault weapon. So I think mm-hmm. one of the frustrating things is if you hate those semi-automatic rifles, an assault weapons ban is still not even getting you what you want. This is right. a thing and politicians yeah. put forward that kind of doesn't actually satisfy anyone. It doesn't satisfy gun owners. It doesn't satisfy people who want real gun control. Right. And it, and it likely would be, wouldn't make a difference. I no, mean, you because could have every assault be- uh, weapon ban in the world and a mentally ill or uh, traumatized or disturbed person can still get enough ammunition mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, um, to, to take, uh, you know, to take out a school or, or what have but you. But it's not um, even a, just a matter of that you can switch magazines so the extended magazine bans don't do as much for, for kind of any definition we've had legally so far of assault weapons. Banning them at point of sale still makes them legal to own as long as you add the other components on later. And that's just nonsensical. In your research for this, uh, have you delved into what kinds of weapons are primarily purchased in the United States? Is it for hunting and sport? Um, Is it for self-protection? I think as we see some of the um, Democratic-run cities in the United States start to disintegrate in terms of policing and, you know, and this is not to say that perhaps in policing there are improvements that could have been made, but now I think a lot of people feel like they're their own police force, you know what I mean? So um, have you been able to sort of break down those those two segments of gun owners in the United States and sort of look at them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is something where I think it's interesting because this is where we talk about kind of the average number of guns per person in the U.S. and that leads us astray because they're very different kind of clusters of people. There are people like me who don't own a gun and never will as far as I intend it. There are people who own maybe a handgun for self-defense that they hopefully keep locked up, but it's a they have one gun with a purpose, you know, and then that's the end of it. There are folks who have gun culture in more of a hunting or, you know, a family sense where there are a number of guns for different members of the family. There are guns you receive as gifts that you keep for sentimental value without taking them out very much. Um, And then there are folks who kind of build private arsenals, whether or not they anticipate using them or think of them as self-defense for a cataclysm they anticipate. So you wind up with this like very odd, you know, curve of gun ownership in the U.S. where, you know, if you pick a randomly owned gun in the U.S., it's probably next to like 15 others because there's some people who own an enormous number of guns, some people who own none, and then some people who own a moderate number. And kind of what they're seeking from those guns is very different depending from which cluster you're talking about. Right. And what, you know, and another one of these solutions that's often proposed are these gun buyback programs. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a in, uh, interesting study recently that showed, I think, um, police departments were offering in one city $250 or $300 for any gun that you brought in. So gun dealers were bringing in much cheaper guns, like $100 guns or $150 guns, and bringing them in and getting the $300 and leaving. And mm-hmm. it tended to be people who were lawful, legal gun owners, or even, again, gun sellers who were taking advantage of the program because they knew the value of what they were ha- holding on to. And the police departments were offering sometimes two to three times that. So they'd bring them in, and the real people they were after, which were the gangs, they, they weren't showing up at all. So I think I think gun buybacks are certainly not a cure-all, and what they're best for is often not what we talk about them doing. So 
You don't expect with a gun buyback that someone who's keeping a gun, you know, for personal defense, including for personal defense against other gang members, is going to think, I'd rather turn this gun in for the money, right? Right. You do have people, like you have any time the government is handing out money with relatively few restrictions, who are grifters and fraudsters. You'll have people, yep. remember how I said the problem is guns are very modular, you can take parts off. You have people who just bring in the lower receiver, it's kind of an L-shaped part of the gun that is legally right. the gun. Um, right. And you just machine a bunch of those and bring them in. And you know, now they're mostly cracking down on that because that's just a money pump, right? But I think the kinds of guns you do get back in a gun buyback aren't guns that you're worried are going to get used in violence later. They're guns that might have been used in suicides. So mm. I think the best way a gun buyback succeeds, and if it does, it will still involve some fraud on the sides, right? Because those are the most motivated right. folks, is when you have someone who's had a gun for a while doesn't really feel a need for personal protection, doesn't have a lingering sentimental attachment and think, this is a good prompt. Today's the day I give it up. And even though they're not yes. thinking about their nephew, their son, someone in their family who's had difficult mental health struggles, that may not be the motive for them turning it in, but now the gun is out of their house the day that person is with them and in a very dark place. Right, 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 right. Especially as you as you mentioned, you know, uh, it, Suicide being the number one gun, gun homicide uh, class of victims in the U.S., that's very important. And that's and, what's really the worst yeah. part about guns from my point of view. People who attempt suicide with a gun succeed. You are both a mom, you're a person of prayer, um, but you're also, in, in terms of policy, you understand and you um, advocate for changes in policy that can really help families. If you had the ears of everybody in Congress and they said, what, Leah, should we do? What is a practical way we can reduce either mass, mass shootings or just gun deaths altogether? What would your recommendations be to them? All right. So I'm going to split them by category because, again, I think the problem okay, is right. you can't yes, kind of fix important. this with a one thing. And I, I don't want to shortchange one of the groups. So I think you think about this as three parts, a suicide policy, a young men homicide policy, and a domestic violence policy. And when you're thinking about suicide, you know, you're thinking both about a broad scale pitch for people of if you have someone in your life who's struggling, a gun is the most dangerous thing you can put in their path. Um, right. You know, the more young women than young men attempt suicide, but more young men die because they're more likely to turn to a gun. Um, and it's just that thing that if you give people the chance for their life to be saved, you know, whether they're trying almost any other method, there's more of a chance for that hard moment not to be the end for them. Right. So really empowering family to try and move guns, lock up guns, think of this as a real present danger for someone they love. And then think about targeted interventions for mental health for groups that we know are particularly at risk. You know, there are veterans groups that really focus on men who come home in a unit together, continuing to check up on each other. Right. Because, you know, it's really hard to predict who will be the next mass shooter. Unfortunately, it's not as hard at all to predict, you know, to ask a commanding officer to drop the list of the five men he's most worried are going to kill themselves. So where we know their names, we can do more for them. Right. That second thing kind of goes for that middle group, too. The young men involved in cycles of homicides, right? When you have young men who keep killing each other, often involved in gang violence, you know, for them, it doesn't look like there's any way out. You've got these two problems of despair, the despair of suicide and the despair of, I've got to do right by my brother. He's dead. I've got to take out the guy who hurt him. 
Right. And that's where, you know, you have a couple things you can do. There's actually real potential for predictive policing there. There are cities mm -hmm. who have kind of run the numbers and thought, we can make a list of 100 people we think are likely to die in gun violence in the next six months and start doing targeted community reach out to them um, to try and right. see what we can do to save their lives. And often you need a trusted member of the community to do that. So you have violence interrupters, older men who are male mentors, father figures to these young men who say, I did kill the guy who killed my brother. It didn't mm -hmm. bring me peace. Like, I've stood exactly where you are. I did the thing you're going to do for the same reason you did it. And I regret it. And I wish I could stop me. So I hope I can stop you. And that really builds a credibility you need. Because I think, I think the hard thing is that even in these moments of profound violence, part of it is motivated by love, even amid gang violence. It's love for someone you've lost or is in danger. It's love for your sense of yourself as a man. And the question is, how do you answer that love and give it the outlet it deserves? And then there's the last category of domestic violence. Um, and this is, in some ways, the most predictable gun deaths, the ones where I think we have the most legislative potential to save lives. Because everything else, you have a number of people who are at risk of suicide, you're not sure how many of them to intervene with or who, a number of young men who are entangled in violence to varying degrees. But when you look at the women who die at the barrel of the gun, many of them are victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Everyone in their lives knew who was the most danger to their life ahead of time. This is where I think red flag laws have a real power that when a woman gets an order of protection, the man who she has the order of protection against loses his guns. Um, and not in a kind of, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to have guns, but we're not going to check or anything, where the police take a real proactive approach to make sure the single person who they can be most confident is a potential you know, murderer doesn't get the opportunity to carry out that murder. Right, right. So is there a way to mitigate these mass shootings then? I think one thing, I think the biggest mitigation thing is more through news coverage, where we think about where we're creating incentives for people to become mass shooters. And to think of these people less as murderers in the aggregate, even though that's what draws them to our attention, but many mass shooters are attempted suicides, right? You have suicide by cop, where people will go out with a gun and try and provoke police into shooting them. A lot of mass shooters, when you do look at their writings, the thing they want most is to die. Um, and then they pick a mass shooting as a way of approaching suicide. And so I think okay. if we think about this, not just in terms of who are the most wicked people and how do we prevent them from carrying out their wickedness, but who's at risk of suicide and how do we try and intervene with them? That's going to catch more mass shooters in that broad dragnet and do good for a lot of other people along the way. Right. Okay. So, I mean, there really isn't anything sort of specific either in the law or in public policy that we can do to prevent these generally because no. they're so hard. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. They're I so wish, hard I to wish find. they were. And you'll find after every mass shooting, there's a discussion of, you know, well, this person shouldn't have been allowed to buy a gun. And in most cases, they are allowed, even under more restrictive right. background checks, because you've got young men with no serious law enforcement history or entanglements, some mental health troubles, but you know we don't actually say if you've ever been depressed, you can't buy a gun. And if we did, that'd be very restrictive right. and kind of muddled in its definition. So you have folks who just aren't on people's radar. So it's, it's hard mm -hmm. to predict ahead of time. And often the people in their lives are definitely worried about them, but yeah. they're not assuming they're worried about them killing others. 
They know right, they're worried right. about their lives, right? Right. And you can look at, at virtually any school shooter, which said, you know, we knew he was a problem. But yeah. to go in and kill small children, like, that never occurred to us. In a, and the the one exemption for the people who sometimes have real flags against them, again, is domestic violence, stalking, okay. right? So right. a young man who's breaking kind of boundaries or norms around young women is someone you should think about seriously, not because you're sure he'll shoot up a school, but because you know he's kind of on a track to be more of a danger to someone, though you don't expect mm -hmm. necessarily it's a child. Right, right. Well, I just, I, I wish I, we had more concrete things that we could do. And that's, I think, one of the really um, upsetting things about this conversation is that in the heat of the moment, you know, everybody wants to do something, but at the end of the day, yeah, maybe we do just need to go back to the prayer component of it. Well, um, I don't, I with don't some want reasonable things like keep locks in the school and don't let in unauthorized people. That and I don't stuff. want to leave you with no hope. You know, I'd, I'd make an analogy. If we think about how we approach treating cancer, if you make a list of kind of the most upsetting and currently intractable cancers, it feels like we're failing, right? Like right. glioblastomas in young children, incredibly upsetting. Uh, but if we just focus on the hardest cases, it does feel like there's no progress being made. But just like we've made extraordinary strides in treating breast cancer, in preventing mm -hmm. cervical cancer, which is the HPV vaccine, we right. do have the power to save people's lives. We can make right. choices that mean fewer people will die by gun next year than did this year. But right. just like with cancer treatment, where often it's drug development for specific cancers, testing for and identifying a small tractable population, that's our approach to gun violence. Okay. Well, well, thank you. I'm glad. And, and thank you for taking the time that you did to really break down those numbers because you didn't, surprisingly, there weren't a whole lot of people who are experts in your area of statistics who actually sat down and did that. And I'm grateful to you for your work. So I want to shift now into something else that you're, uh, you have an area of expertise in, which is uh, motherhood and family policies. Mm -hmm. So, um, you have written a bit about why gender-neutral family policies shortchanges mothers. Can you explain that, please? Absolutely. You know, I think it's easy, especially in America, to think that fair is always identical, right? So if we're going to give a parental leave policy, it should be the same amount of time for mothers as for fathers. And to be clear, I'm in favor of generous parental leave for both mothers and fathers, so I'm never sad about fathers getting more time. But I think when we kind of start from this baseline of neutrality is equal, we're not telling the truth about what birth means for women. You know, my husband having time off meant that he could do nighttime changes, he could take care of me, he could take care of our baby. It made a huge difference. But he wasn't recovering from a C-section incision, you know, and the next time around he wasn't recovering from, you know, a serious tear that, you know, meant I had to go to physical therapy. And he wasn't breastfeeding, right? So when we mm -hmm. think about what does it mean to recover from birth and be present for your child? The mom and dad both have unique things to contribute, but the mom has a physical recovery component and a different connection from her for her baby, especially if she's breastfeeding than the dad does. Right, right. And men have other needs during this time as well, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, for for the first few weeks, I had a C-section like you did, and it was helpful that my husband was there because I couldn't move, I couldn't yeah. drive myself anywhere. I, you know, um, but then you know there comes a certain point where you might be getting three or four hours at least at a time of sleep, et cetera, and the baby's settling down where it's really helpful for him to be able to go back to work and resume a schedule, at least part-time. You know what I mean? It's for his own. I mean, um, if it's paid leave, I'll take him at home longer, to be honest. Sure, like, yeah, I'm, no, and I'm not I'm not <laughs> arguing against paid leave for dads, but this blurring between men and women in, in terms of childbirth and child rearing, 
I, I agree with you. I think it has been harmful. And I think one of the things where you see a practical component is there was a, you know, a study done of universities where what they were doing is they were trying to give equal benefits to moms and dads who were professors who both needed time off for a baby. And I believe what they gave them was an extra year on their tenure clock, right? So you have a baby, your tenure clock pauses for a year, you have more time to put together the big tenure box. I'm not in academia, but that whole big pile of research that justifies or doesn't your application for tenure. And so they gave it equally for men and women with the idea being we don't want to leave parents out. Right. Women still fell behind, and men who got the leave leapfrogged ahead of them because men didn't need to do as much during their pause year for their child. Um, and so for them, it was a big gift to get ahead. And for women, it wasn't enough to catch up. So again, that's a very concrete example of where fairness leaves women behind because it treats us as though the fact that we gave birth is incidental, that we're just generic parents. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I, well, it's, a, again, another point I'm very grateful to you for raising. And you and I uh, were on a panel together. Uh, oh, gosh, it's probably getting closer <laughs> to two years now after Dobbs about, um, you know, changes in family policies and other things that needed to happen societally and attitudinally. And one of the points you brought up that I thought was so insightful, you talked about single women of color going in for their medical appointments. But when they were accompanied by one of the Sisters of Life, which is an order of religious women based in New York, who take a, in addition to vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, take an additional fourth vow to protect and defend human life from conception to natural death. And so they have a special, they have homes for moms, mm -hmm. expectant moms, et cetera, et cetera. But when one of them accompanies a woman to her medical appointments and the difference in the way the women are treated, the patients are treated, because of the presence of one of those sisters. I thought that was fascinating. How did you come to observe this? And can you talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, I heard it from a friend who had volunteered as a doula with the Sisters of Life, who was also advocating for these women. And these are women who are poor women, who are, have crisis pregnancies, who have a lot that's difficult in their life. And you'd hope that someone in a caring profession who's a doctor is meeting that vulnerability with an increase of care. And that's not the case. You know, mm -hmm. They've had cases where doctors are treating them with contempt, rushing them into treatments without their full consent or without giving them the information they need for informed consent. And you, know, you, you talk about the challenge for you know, people who are pro-life of trying to have doctors who see both patients, the baby and the mom. And you know, right. these moms come in and it feels like the doctor sees neither patient. And it's that thing where you know, my friend might be in the room and see how the doctor is reacting and then sees the sister come in. And I think, you know, there's a real sense in which habited religious, like, bring the awareness of the presence of God into a room. Right. Um, and the doctor And also someone who's going to be a strong, firm advocate, right? Yes, yes. But sometimes even before the sister says anything, it's just that sense of being watched, right? Like, of mm -hmm. being accountable um, that makes the doctors behave better. And it's a crying shame because, of course, Jesus yeah. is already present in that room when the woman is there, right? She's right. Christ for the doctor, and he's ignoring her while she's naked, you know, ignoring her while she's hungry, ignoring her while she's in pain. Um, but the sisters bring a big gift, not just through their active work, but through their simple faithful presence to call mm -hmm. people back to themselves and to what the heart of a caring profession is. Right. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, of that old T-shirt that you used to see, you don't scare me, I was taught by nuns. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it. As. Um, but also, you know, to me, it speaks to the fact um, you know, the new CDC statistics on abortion are out, and they show that 87% of all abortions are performed on single women. Hmm. 
and that a single woman is 10 times as likely to have an abortion as a married woman is, even under the same whatever circumstances, uh, income or et cetera, et cetera. And to me, that, that shows a level of coercion, I think, for single women in terms of continuing their pregnancy that isn't, that isn't present for married women. And that I do think the medical community tends to overemphasize the difficulty. And I'm not, you know, in any way saying we shouldn't be realistic about, you know, single parenthood, because it is hard. But by the same token, are you leading with that discouragement? Or is that your first reaction? Oh, you're having a baby. That's wonderful. Well, you see someone who is in a situation of greater need, and you have two choices. You can think about how do we meet this need? Or you can say, you know, oh, you know, that need is bad. Even if it's a person, need is so dangerous, I'll take away the person, I'll kill the person to make you safe again. And I think you see this kind of in other situations beyond abortion, right? So in Canada, where they've been expanding euthanasia seemingly without limit, you have people who have modest needs. There was a Paralympic athlete in Canada who called asking for help installing a wheelchair ramp. Is that like, oh, well, we don't have funds for a wheelchair ramp, but you know, it sounds like you're in a tough spot. Like, do you want a consultation on being killed? Um, yeah. And that's essentially what we're saying to women who are in crisis pregnancies. We're saying, well, you're definitely in a tough spot. Like, we're not. Right. We're not leading with any kind of help for your situation. We're not leading with deep compassion for your situation. We're saying, would killing someone help? Right, 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 right. And that's that's our best solution for you. And I think that particularly happens in communities of color. And that was another thing the CDC stats showed were that, you know, Black women who make up 12% of the population have 45% of all the abortions. Mm-hmm. It's a real and, council of despair, right? And it's not pro-choice either because of— no. You oh could you could support abortion as a moral issue. You know, think it's a totally morally neutral thing. Think a fetus isn't a person. And to be fully pro-choice, you'd still say, well, you know, if a woman wants to have a baby and she's got economic factors in her way, then our job is to solve those economic factors. Just like if she doesn't want to have our baby, our job is to trash the baby. But you don't see that enthusiasm for both arms of a pro-choice agenda. Right. So, you know, as I like to say, um, especially when I'm speaking at college campuses, the response to a crisis pregnancy is to eliminate the crisis. Mm -hmm. You don't eliminate the child because then you just, I mean, it's why the repeat rate for abortions, it's 49%. I mean, so half of women who are having abortions have had an abortion previously because abortion doesn't solve your problems and they're still going to be there after your abortion. That's the other thing. People kind of stick with this imaginary idea of what abortions look like in America. There's a high school cheerleader. She's also the valedictorian. She's got a scholarship. You know, everything in her life is on track except for the baby. And if you subtract the baby, everything is going well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing I learned when my family was considering adoption for a while, which didn't work out for us, but we were talking to the agency is... You know, the women who are considering adoption are doing it because there's a lot that's going wrong in their life. You know, they were very frank with us. They're saying women who are coming to us are struggling with drug issues. They're struggling with mental health. They're struggling with homelessness. You know, they don't think they can safely take care of a baby, and they're pretty confident that if they tried, CPS might take their baby away anyway. So they'd rather make an active adoption choice. And that really shows you that Neither abortion nor adoption is a full solution for those women. You know, it may be ca- mm-hmm. the case that they can't safely raise their child and they want to make sure they make a courageous choice for their baby. But that woman doesn't have her life fixed by the fact that she no longer has her baby with her to raise. She still needs the drug support, mental health support, housing support. It's almost as though that we kind of say, well, as long as the baby's out of the picture, the woman doesn't matter anymore. Right, right. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And um, 
a very important conversation to have. Uh, I wish we had more time to delve into it, but I, perhaps you can come back and we can really unpack that a little bit more because it's it's really critically important for people to understand that you know adoption is not it's not easy for women, right? And and um, so, but there's a lot there's a lot there. Uh, but I, on a slightly more lighthearted note, I'm a great fan of your Twitter feed, and listeners, you can follow Leah at at Leah Labresco on Twitter or X, depending on what you call it. Um, but you had a, a couple of tweets recently about the out of control wedding culture, and <laughs> I believe you you reposted a story I had read actually uh, prior to you seeing it in the New York Times, where it talked about uh, a woman who. Um, in order to invite her bridesmaids to be bridesmaids. I mean, it's, it's read like a Saturday night live. It's ridiculous. She sent them each a, a, a gift box with champagne and t-shirts that said, will you be my bridesmaid? And, you know, you talked about this sort of out of control wedding culture and the focus being more on that particular day. My mom used to say this, there are w- young women who are ready to get married and young women who are ready to have a wedding. <laughs> and there is a difference between those two things. Let's talk about little what what do you think that reflects on culturally? I'm so glad I I dodged this bullet when I just had my sisters as my bridesmaids and that was it that was the end of it. So um I'm I'm just so relieved because when someone says I saw you tweeting recently and this is you know way better than this could have gone. Um yeah, so I think part of it is that you know we have a culture that doesn't know what marriage is. And so if you don't have a strong sense of what's happening when you get married, then what marriage is is a wedding. Um and you have this kind of core emptiness or question that's kind of covered with more and more layers of tool and flowers and, you know, weird Instagram moments. Um, you know, I'm I'm a weirdo from a debate background with friends from a weird debate background. So when my friends get engaged, Catholic or not, I ask them, what are you doing when you get married? What will happen? And I hear a range of answers. You know, some folks say, we've decided we want to have a baby, right? So they've been dating, living together for a long time. They really think, but if we want a baby, we should be married. So they think of there as being some change there. So as they say, our parents want us to get married, but nothing is happening for us, right? Like right. there's nothing that a wedding means to them. And I think especially when it's pretty common to be sexually active before marriage, it's less clear what is happening at marriage, right? Your bodies have already made a promise to each other. What new promise are you adding at this point? Mm-hmm. You see that even yeah. in just what what I find very weird is super late night weddings where the bride and groom are there to like 11 o'clock at night. I know. And I'm like, oh my gosh. You're newlyweds. It's... What are you doing partying no, with us? No, they're not. Yeah. So this is dating myself. So it's going back a good 25 years. But one of my friends, you know, and her, they had dated for two years, chastely, and her husband marched her around that room to say hello to every table and then got her out of there. And she's like, <laughs> I look back on it now and think- how horrified my parents must have been, you mm-hmm. know, because it was so obvious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was all like, they were all recounting this on Facebook. And he jumped on and said, listen, I'd been waiting two years. Yeah. And the time was time was nigh. And I was getting out of there. I was not going to get caught up having to talk to people. But you just think, but the joy of that, having that to look forward to and how, you know, um, and, it being and how it, intimate, sweet it was, you know. Intimate and private, right? Like it versus, yes, right. you know, then you're back Sunday morning for the wedding brunch. You don't have to. Like you can just go be married, right? You don't right, have to have right. a picture. Go on your honeymoon. Leave that. Have your bag packed and go. You don't you have know. to tell us a story about your wedding. Like nothing about that night should be for anyone but the two of you. And I think there's a lot right. of pressure that a wedding is something you produce and document rather than a thing that's shared between two people. When my husband and I got married, you know, we tried to keep two questions in mind for all of our wedding planning uh, to try and limit how much we were stressed out by it. And it worked pretty well. We were you know, married in less than six months from engagement to wedding, which was, mm-hmm. 
does this choice affect the validity of the sacrament? Um, and most wedding choices don't. Like, should there be flower centerpieces or no? We can decide anything. It doesn't affect the validity of the sacrament, right? And the second was, you know, if we picture a guest who on the way home from the wedding is complaining about this choice, do they sound like a jerk? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things where, you know, could the buffet be more sumptuous? You know, possibly. Like, could the party go longer? Maybe. Most of these choices still don't matter. We want to think about what will work best for our friends to make them welcome at the wedding. And that meant right. it turned out my mom was right, and I acceded to her in time. We did do a seating plan so that people knew where to sit and weren't milling around nervously, and that was about real hospitality. But honestly, right. the best choice we made is that we booked like two or three teenage babysitters who were in a room next, right next to the reception. And mm. folks who had small kids could either have their kids at the reception with them, or they could go off and play where there were just a bunch of gym mats and they were all kind of tumbling all over. Um, and they could go back and forth. So it wasn't bring your kids, don't bring your kids. Right. It was yeah, let your kids drift in and out it. of the party. Um, yeah. That was way cheaper than getting a professional florist to do centerpieces. It was a way better use of money for us and for the guests. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of ways where you can, I mean, and it's not about being frugal. It's just about spending your money wisely. But it's okay um, to be frugal. Like also, I just think, you know, people start with the assumption that a wedding is a huge hit to your finances. And historically, it's not, right? Like right. historically, you post your bands for three weeks and you just get married at church in a normal church service. And right, thinking about right, that right, as right. the baseline and that that's a loud, valid, and a real sacramental wedding means you don't have to go very far beyond that if you don't want to. Right. And, you know, I think that was one of the good things that came out of the COVID lockdowns mm -hmm. and the restrictions were smaller weddings. And I have friends whose children married during that time and you could only have immediate family and, you know, maybe 12 people in the church and then a very small reception. But they said, you know, friends who have had kids get married in big weddings, but also and they people of means. So they could have done it either way, but said they much preferred the smaller wedding. They said they were able to actually have a much more elegant meal because it was fewer people. Mm -hmm. It was intimate and beautiful and the bride and groom were happy. And then they went off on their, you know, they didn't feel like they'd been deprived. And in fact, all those stresses and pressures that sometimes come with a big event were just, weren't even part of the day for them. I think the thing that really, you know, pushes up the cost in a way that's not people's fault and the pressure that's hard is, People don't live near the people they love, right? Like if, if everyone you love lives in your town, then you really can just get engaged and say, we're getting married in four weeks, like everyone bring a hot dish and meet us at church, right? Right. Um, but if all your friends live across the country, you have that sense of we've got to plan and people have spent $300 on plane tickets. So we owe it to them for it to be a big party or we need to spend more time because we're seeing all these friends we haven't seen for a year. So we need to add more programming to spend time together. I think that's a response to a real hardship of modern life, of having people you love who you don't see as often as you want, and then kind of covering that loss with spectacle. Um, and I think the the challenge is, can you still kind of pare down the costs, keep things simple, and think about this less as, this is the one moment where I make up for everything I miss about my friendships, and mm -hmm. more, let's keep this simple and let's plan a visit to our friends ourselves at a different time. But right. that's a real loss, like that sense of, I want the wedding to be a big moment because it's the first time I'll see all my friends from college together again since we graduated. Like, right. But that's yeah. not what the wedding is actually about. Right. Yeah. And have an appreciation for that. And, you know, I, one of the things, you know, it uh, on a big anniversary when we look back at our wedding album and I look at all the people who aren't there anymore, you know, um, 
it it you're you're grateful that they that you shared that moment with them you know before they went to meet the lord and so it it can you know i'm not i'm not uh, agitating against larger weddings because they have their place and they can be very beautiful but um but the the entire the it's not even extravagance. It's just the excess in a sinful way. Like I actually felt kind of sick to my stomach after I read that New York Times. Oh article. yeah. Well, I think that's the thing, which is like you can't, you know, you can't take your wedding as a solution for the struggles you're having in your friendships, even if they're real struggles, right? And you know, solving them with money and spectacle won't make you happier. So uh, that's that is, that's we the real that adjustment on a you're trying to make. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you are, just as we're wrapping up here, you are an atheist to Catholic convert. That's right. And you're also the author of a book called Building the Benedict Option. Can you, um, I, and I know everyone loves a good conversion story, though. So if you could share just very briefly about your, your own experience in coming to know the Lord in the Catholic Church, and then what you mean by building the Benedict mm-hmm. Option. All right. I'm going to give you kind of the bullet points because the actual version is like an hour long. But the the core of it is that I was you know, an atheist growing up in a relatively non-religious family and community. But one thing I did get both very strongly from my parents and from my reading and thinking is a firm conviction in morality being absolute, something Mm. objective, something we uncover like archaeologists when we study. It's not something we build like architects. And ultimately, it was kind of pushing on that question, doing more and more digging to better understand how do I come to know this objective transcendent thing that led right. me to decide if I'm, you know, if I have a conflict between my belief in objective morality and my atheism, the thing I'm less sure of is my atheism. That's the part mm. that has to go. That's yeah. the Cliff Notes version. Right. Well, that's, um, there's, a, there's a lot to there's think a lot. about there. And we'll have to have you back, um, you know, to talk about it more because you're, I mean, you went to Yale undergrad, right? That's right. I mean, yep. You're a very educated woman. And I think sometimes people associate people of faith with being less educated um, and not being able to come to it intellectually. Um, but speaking of, tell us about your book then, Building the Benedict Option. What does that mean for listeners who might not be familiar with the Benedict Option per se, and then building it? Yeah, so the Benedict Option is an idea that was kind of popularized and coined by Rod Dreher. And I think one of the best summaries of it briefly I've seen is that it's a ratchet effect. It's a question of moving one step closer to God and moving your one step deeper into friendship in Christ with your friends, right? So it's not mm. a rejection or, um, or a retreat from the world, but what it is is a choice to say, I want to root more of my life in God, so I might need to you know, be a better conduit, open more of my life to God to have more to give when I engage with the broader world. Right. Rod was kind of making the pitch for this is worth doing at all. My book, Building the Benedict Option, is about how can you take those two steps closer to God and closer into community in the next two weeks to six months? Because I think it's easy Mm. to think about this as something that you're allowed to do later. I'll be allowed to do that when I own a house. I'll be allowed to do that when I'm married, when my real life starts. Um, But maybe this is too blunt a way of putting it, like people die all the time, like your real life is right now. And so if this is something that's worth doing, it's worth doing from your apartment, from your parents' basement while you're out of work, thinking, how can I move closer to God and closer to communion and friendship? And my focus is on starting to do that where you are right now. Oh, that's, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because when I think about like the Benedict option, I think, okay, when my youngest is finally out of high school, Mm -hmm. then we can think about 
starting the small community yep. with other like-minded families and, you know, creating that. But and there are really- projects you can't take on for a time. So like not until my friends and I build a commune on unincorporated land will my friend and I get to build the fireworks studio and science factory we've always dreamed of because it's super right. illegal, right? Like, does that mean we can't have a deeper life in Christ with each other right now, even without a full-on weird chemistry homeschooling co-op? Of course not. Yes. And right, it can be right, easier right, right. to fantasize about the perfect later than think about the good that's in front of you right now. Yeah, and that's um, yeah, that is a, a oftentimes hard, uh, you know, um, hard learned lesson, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know that we think everything is sort of in the future, and um, and it's actually not. It's the life that we're living right now. Plus, just like what we were talking about, the weddings, you set too high a standard for something that's a normal part of life. You start to take it out of reach for people. So if you think I'll right. be a good host when my house is clean as a mom, you'll never have friends over. Your house will never yeah. be clean, right? Like you should just right. accept that and think, I want to invite people into my life because this is the life I have. But again, if you're kind of teaching your friends, oh yeah, I'd love to have you over. I'll have to be able to pick up first. You're telling them, don't invite me over. I don't want to go to your messy house either, right? You're starting to close no. doors without yeah. thinking of it. Right. Like, and if you're not going to be using your wedding china and your silver, <laughs> then you really shouldn't be having people over for dinner, yeah. you know? We've had people over with pizza and paper plates, and we prayed night office at the end, and that was a good night. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, you know, and that's a very simple thing. And it's almost kind of like, I guess, what book clubs were back in the 90s, right? When people would, we would have book club, but no one would really actually read the whole book. And, and it really just became more about community, you know, um, rather than, but, um, but it, but there is a way because it involved, it, it didn't involve doing something, it involved talking by yes. definition. And it involves admitting that the reason you're getting together is because you love your friends, right? Like, which I think it's harder. Right. You, you wait for right. an occasion versus I'd love to have you over because I love you, right? Like, that should right. be a normal thing to say to your friends, not, oh, yes, like, we have to pretend we're reading a book for a book club to have an excuse to want to spend time with each other. Yeah. And I think that's harder, too, you know, when you get married for your husband, because, you know, the comedian John Mulaney has a very funny bit about how his dad's friends are just now all his mom's friends' husbands. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. like he doesn't have his own set of friends anymore. And that happens. So it it really is important just because we are, I mean, God created us to be social beings, mm-hmm. right? And so it is important to, um, to create for everyone in our family opportunities for them to be um, in community with other people and to be social. You know, if you have, I have a very shy teenager and I need to, I need to structure things for her so yeah. that, you know, she does spend time with other people and comes to enjoy it. And mm-hmm. even though if it, that doesn't come to her naturally. And I think for men, it's important to remember that what brings them together is often shared work and a shared need for them as men or sports, right? But like, it shouldn't be only sports. And in a community where there are no barn raisings, there are fewer times when men come together to be strong as men together to take care of others, right? So like, sometimes the best thing you can do for like, your husband or the men of the neighborhood is say like, well, we need to take the shed down, like, you know, there'll be beer and pizza and get a bunch of guys, like, that's more fun for them than just like, well, we have wine and cheese and canapes, right? Like, right, which men don't really want to do. No, but if there's something and and you know what, and men, one of my older lady friends who's kind of a mentor, I shouldn't say older lady, but a more mature (laughs) woman who has been married longer than me. um, You know, we were just talking about kind of marital conflict, which believe it or not does happen, Mm -hmm. even when you've been and she said, you know, when I when I'm not getting along with my husband. Sometimes it does help if I ask him to do something to help mm-hmm. me with something, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and uh, that 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 can that men liked to be asked yes. to help. Uh, they they like to be asked to 
um, to do something for the person that they are in love with, you know, that it, it fulfills them in a way. I think that's really true for men in marriage, but I think it's also true for friendship and we really underrate it at our peril that, you know, we think of friendship as something we want to approach as our best self without neediness. Um, but what makes someone our friend, not, you know, a colleague or someone who we're the customer of is that we approach them when our lives are less good and say, I'm vulnerable, I'm sick, would you bring me dinner? I'm asking you because you're my friend, not right. uh, because only I be in my life when you. my right. life is perfect, right? Right, yeah. You don't have to bring a casserole just to come over. You can <laughs> you can just come over. And um, well, how, so tell me, how long have you been a Catholic now? A little more than 10 years. Okay, yeah. So and what what's the most surprising thing to you uh, about being a, that, that you didn't realize when you came into the church um, or that you liked the most? What's been the most fulfilling thing for you. I think different things at different times. I think right when I came into the church, um, confession was just a real gift that was hard to picture outside the church. Um, and I think mm. often in a secular context, um, in a framework without religion, when you put something wrong that's too large for you to put right by yourself, there's just no exit from that, right? Like even if okay. it's a small thing, um, but the sense of it's obvious we break things that we can't fix entirely, you know, and we don't either deny that we've broken them because we're too embarrassed or pretend our fix is good enough. We can admit right. our own inadequacy in confession and ask God to make up what we lack. Oh, well, that's really beautiful. Well, uh, listeners, you can follow Leah Labresco on Twitter and or X at at Leah Labresco, Leah Labresco Sargent, um, and her book, Building the Benedict Option, you can find on Amazon or in Catholic bookstores, or in probably if you, a bookstore still exists in your area at probably any bookstore in if it's a large enough one in your area. So Leah Labresco Sargent, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.